0: Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the messages that we commonly hear in our culture today is that our faith should be private. We're often told in both obvious and subtle ways that our religious beliefs have no business in public life. Whereas the idea of freedom of religion once pointed towards people having the freedom to publicly practice whatever religion they saw fit. Now it increasingly points towards people being free from ever encountering the religious ideas of others in any kind of public pace, public place. (laughs) It's not enough that references to God should be kept vague, vague, In general, now the the pressure from many secular advocacy groups is to erase all mention of God from all things, like the prologue to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, or the Canadian National Anthem. Instead of Canada being a place in which people are free to publicly practice their religious beliefs, Or state their religious beliefs without fear of persecution. Our nation is increasingly becoming a place in which we're told that we can only really have our religious beliefs so long as no one else ever has to hear about them. And this is particularly dangerous for us, beloved. Because if we're going to be honest... Our church federation is already bad about keeping our faith personal and to ourselves. We already often act the way that our culture wants us to. I know that I am not the only one who has noticed that Canadian Reformed believers in general aren't all that comfortable when it comes to talking about Our personal faith lives. Now I should nuance that comment because I do find within our Canadian Reform Federation we are very diligent when it comes to talking about our faith and teaching our faith on a formal level. We often put a lot of energy into regularly attending worship services. Sending children to catechism classes and attending Bible studies. We often place a a huge emphasis on giving our children a a Christian education. But when it comes to, to talking about our faith and beliefs on a personal level, we often seem to struggle. I've met dozens of Canadian Reformed believers from, from churches all across the country, not just in Ontario or in classes Ontario North, but people from all different Canadian Reformed churches across this land who've talked about the fact that they find it incredibly awkward to talk about their Christian faith even with believers who share the exact same religious convictions. I've met far too many people in our churches who have grown up in Christian homes where there was daily prayer and Bible reading, but their parents never once talked to them about their faith or their love for God. Their personal sense of gratitude for what Jesus Christ had done for them. And now, why might that be? Is it because many of our churches have a lot of people with Dutch roots and the Dutch were simply naturally stoic and impersonal people? Is it because many of our parents or grandparents were immigrants and the hardships that they endured made them more inwardly focused and uncommunicative about their faith? Well, I don't know why exactly so many of us make our faith this thing that we reserve exclusively for formal worship services and Bible studies and family devotions. But I know it's there. I know that many of you students Find it hard to talk about your Christian faith in a real way with your classmates at your Christian schools. Because if you bring up God or talk about how He clearly wants you to live, you'll often be isolated by your Canadian Reformed classmates who will say that you're trying too hard. We know all that. You don't have to be holier than thou. I know that because... There are kids who say that they find it easier to be a Christian in a public school than in many of our Canadian Reformed ones. And so, I think we should agree, at least on some level, that we have a problem when it comes to talking and living out our faith. That we have difficulty when it comes to integrating what we believe with how we daily interact with one another, with our brothers and sisters in the faith, with our children, even with those in the world around us. Now in my home church in Grand Valley over the next while, we're going to be looking at the book of Titus. The book which helps talk about, or which is all about helping one another to to live out the things which we believe. It's a book which regularly calls upon us to be involved with one another. To abandon an individualistic, everyone-for-themselves kind of approach to the Christian life. To become part of a rich, supportive, and open church community. Unfortunately, I can't preach the entire series while I am exchanging here in Owen Sound But I will be presenting the first sermon in this series, where we look at the very beginning of this pastoral letter, where the Apostle Paul reminds his fellow worker Titus of the glorious mission that they have received from God. Beloved, I proclaim God's word as it comes to us in Titus chapter 1, the first four verses using this theme. Paul reminds Titus to strengthen the faith of God's elect. And we'll see first the, the central promise of our faith, second, the eternal promise of our faith, and third, the missional promise of our faith. Paul begins his letter to Titus with a rather extensive greeting in which he describes both himself and his mission. He says, at first, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth. Now, almost all of Paul's letters or epistles begin with Paul introducing himself. It's more or less simply how you wrote a letter in those days. But the the letter to Titus stands out because of how much Paul says in the initial greeting portion of the letter. In the first place, he he describes himself as a a bondservant of God or a servant or a slave of God. The, The Greek word points to someone who is solely committed to the service of another. I'm calling himself a, a bond servant of God, Paul wishes to highlight that he is not working for his own glory or for his own personal benefit. He sees himself as being in the service of God. Now ordinarily, Paul introduced himself as a, a servant of Christ. It's the only place in a greeting where he calls himself a, a servant of God. And the reason for the, this change isn't quite certain, but it's likely that Paul adapts his, his opening greeting in light of the kind of people that he's going to be warning Titus about later on in the letter. The title, Bond Servant of God, connects Paul with figures from the Old Testament. Figures like Moses, who was called a, a servant of God by Solomon. You can also see in the Old Testament that men like King David and many of the prophets are also called servants of God. See, later on, Paul will warn Titus about many opponents that he's going to face in the churches that are on the island of Crete where Titus is serving. And his greatest opponents will likely be among false teachers from the circumcision party. These difficult individuals appear to have been very concerned with with following the practices found in the Old Testament law. By calling himself a a servant of God, Paul is effectively claiming that the Christian faith that he is preaching is the legitimate outworking, the legitimate follow-up to what God did and promised throughout the Old Testament. He is reminding Titus and other believers that what he was teaching as an apostle of Jesus Christ was the the true fulfillment of everything that God had introduced first through his people, the Jews. Now Paul doesn't really have to, to introduce himself to Titus at all. Titus had been a a close co-worker with him. He knew exactly what Paul stood for. He knew why he was preaching the gospel. But in describing himself this way, Paul is reminding Titus how Titus ought to see himself. He's reminding Titus that they are following God's will and doing his work bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. A gospel gospel based on faith and not on things like works of the law or obscure Jewish myths. See, everything in this greeting should be seen in the first place as a, a reminder to Titus of the mutual faith which he and Paul had spread and nourished before in various places. In the second place, Paul's words speak to other believers who would read this letter. Paul describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, that is, as someone who had been sent out to spread the good news about the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Titus already knows this. You might even say we already know this. Paul's words are a reminder to Titus. That Titus has also been tasked to to spread the Christian faith. A reminder to us that we have our own role to play. in Proclaiming the good news about what God has done with our mouths and our actions. Not only to those outside of the church, but even to those who are inside members of the congregation. So, really Paul, Titus, even ourselves, we've been given a divine mission according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth. We are all expected to be working for the benefit of God's holy people, strengthening each other in faith and knowledge, encouraging each other to rely upon God for everything that we need teaching each other about the facts of what God has done so that our faith and trust would always be resting on a, a firm and solid foundation. What we see throughout the Bible and what we can see often particularly clearly in many of Paul's letters is that faith and knowledge always go hand in hand. You know, Paul's message was never Believe what I tell you and don't ask too many questions. No, he, he advocated a faith that was based on real human experiences. The fact that the apostles had really truly experienced and witnessed the resurrection. Faith based on the, the fulfilled words of scripture. It's something which we can even note in our Heidelberg Catechism where we acknowledge that true faith involves both a sure knowledge... And a a firm confidence of what God has revealed and done. Now the elect for whom Paul and the other believers work are those who are justified in the sight of God because of Christ's work. Paul writes in Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Paul had been, in other words, assigned a a mission to bring the gospel to the entire world so that God's chosen people, his elect, would obtain eternal life and increasingly learn to live as imitators of Christ. Paul also wrote to the Romans in Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, In order that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Paul reminds Titus that the faith and the knowledge of the elect is to be something which accords with godliness. In other words, our our faith in Jesus Christ, our knowledge of what he has done, is to encourage us to live at all times in a a God-honoring manner of life. Our faith demands godly behavior. Knowing what Jesus Christ has done for us will transform the way in which we live both towards God and towards others around us. If we see ourselves being overwhelmed by sin, we ought to think in the first place about the state of our faith and knowledge. Are we finding our hope in something else? Have we stopped looking for peace and satisfaction in Jesus Christ and started to look for it in, say, the approval of others? Have we stopped learning from the Scriptures on a daily basis and begun to simply accept the messages and the kind of morality that's popular in our secular media, which we're bombarded with on a daily basis? that word godliness that Paul uses it implies that we will be more concerned with honoring our father in heaven than with anything else in this life godliness doesn't mean that other people will be impressed by your outward devotion to god to be godly doesn't mean that we have to go out of our way to convince others that we are pious individuals Oh, to be godly means that we will be focused on pleasing God before anything else or anyone else. And often that will mean living at odds with the culture around us. Rejecting practices that they deem acceptable. And striving to follow a much harder, more difficult path. But one which ultimately leads to a far more blessed existence. Paul notes that this faith and knowledge is being passed on and taught in hope of eternal life. And this hope is not a, a kind of a blind or a naive hope, something we simply wish is true. No, it is a hope which will certainly be realized because it is rooted in God's promises. Today, you might sometimes encounter people who will talk about being content with only experiencing one life. Well, we can try to sugarcoat death all we want, but it's still the enemy. You know, it's true that in certain circumstances, death is something which is easier to bear. When a person passing on has lived a, a long life and received blessings like a great family life. A rewarding career, or exciting experiences. But even that doesn't make death a welcome event. You might say that normalizing death merely encourages a culture of death, a culture in which suicide and euthanasia are increasingly seen as acceptable options, a culture in which those who aren't experiencing a, a wonderful life are told that they would be better off dead a culture in which we would rather abort children who may have a a genetic defect or some other disability at birth instead of giving them a chance at life. As believers, we are to remember that Jesus has conquered death so we can faith both life and death with the sure knowledge that this is not all there is. Our Lord came to suffer And die. And rise again. So that we would be looking forward to more than simply this fallen existence. This is the hope that Paul talks about. It's the hope that gives us the strength to fight on. Because this hope reminds us that our suffering is never meaningless or pointless or in vain. Our willingness to fight on despite the hard times or the hard circumstances, demonstrates that we aren't simply living for ourselves. It's a demonstration that we are living for the honor and glory of our Savior. Courage in the face of death and suffering and difficulty is a testament to the fact that our God has saved us. And He's claimed us for Himself, both for service in this life as well as in the next. This brings us to our second point. Our faith is ultimately centered on a promise made before time began. A promise that we will experience a, an infinite amount of time in the future. Where Paul declares that the hope of eternal life is something which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. The the Holy Spirit is effectively revealing through Paul that it has always been God's intention to have us join him in eternity. God promised even before he created humanity before creating the universe or time itself, that he would grant his elect people everlasting life so that they would be able to spend everlasting life with him. And our future is certain because God is faithful to his promises, even those we weren't around to hear. As Solomon declared at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, Back in 1 Kings chapter 8, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses' servant. Time and time again throughout the, the Old and the New Testament, we see examples of God being faithful to his promises. Over and over again, we see God overcoming seemingly impossible situations through his awesome power to guarantee that his plan of salvation comes to completion. And we see this most notably in the arrival and life of his perfect son. For we are told that God not only gave his promises in eternity, but also has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. See what we see in the Bible is that Jesus Christ is the living embodiment of God's promises. He is He is the word made flesh. You might remember those well-known words from the beginning of John's gospel. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of only the Father or the Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus' arrival on earth was the definitive proof of God's love towards us. This desire to to save us from our depravity and our sinfulness and our rebellion. So someone might ask us Maybe not these words exactly, but something similar. How can you think that you're going to live forever? We can confidently respond because God keeps his promises. He promised to send a Savior, and he did. And so when that Savior says that we can have eternal life by believing in his name, we can believe him. We can trust him. We are not clinging to a blind hope, to a, to a nice fairy tale, but to a guaranteed and verified reality, something which has been signed, sealed, and delivered in the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. God took on human form, revealed himself clearly for all to see. Now, we can't see him the same way anymore, but he continues to be revealed to us whenever the the scriptures are proclaimed, whenever we are hearing or reading the Bible, the, the written word of God. We are ultimately hearing or reading about the word, the incarnate word. Whenever we discuss the Bible and what it says with our children or with our neighbors or those around us, We have an opportunity through that to reveal to them our Savior. To speak to them of what he has done for others. What he has done for us. Paul was entrusted with preaching. With proclaiming to others the coming of Jesus Christ. The word used here for preaching was more generally used at that time to indicate a kind of a public declaration made by a herald that points to, to spreading the news of the gospel to every corner of the globe so that all the elect might be brought in. Paul would use the same word in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21. where He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach To save those who believe. Now it would be a mistake to think that the task of spreading the good news is to be left to men like Paul or Titus. We all have a task to make public. Widely proclaim what Jesus Christ has done. And this will put us at odds with our secular neighbors. You might never want to encounter anyone who's spreading their faith. But we shouldn't give up in doing what we can to ensure that everyone has a chance to hear the message of the gospel. We're told in Acts that Paul reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. He used every opportunity, every point that he had to discuss the good news about Jesus Christ with those around him. He went where the people were. He didn't simply hope that they would show up. And so we should also consider what we can do to be out there in the world being lights on a hill instead of lights under a bowl. And We should be speaking to one another about our faith and about our walk with God. Because we won't be able to speak naturally about our faith with those who don't believe. If we can't even do it with those who do. We can't expect to be able to speak clearly about faith with unbelieving friends. If We can't bring ourselves to do it with believing ones. We can't expect to teach unbelievers. If we hesitate to try and teach our own children. But what God has done and is doing for us at the present time. This brings us to our third and final point. The missional promise of our faith. As we've already noted, this letter is addressed to Titus. Paul calls him a true son in our common faith. Words which, you might say, point to the fact that, in many ways, Paul had functioned as a kind of spiritual father to Titus. At one point, during a dark moment in Paul's ministry, Paul even reminisced, But God, who comforts the downcasts, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now the fact that Paul addresses Titus as a son shouldn't be taken to imply that Titus was then young or inexperienced. Titus was a, a regular co-worker with Paul, someone who had worked along with him among Christian believers in places like Galatia, Corinth, Macedonia, Jerusalem. At an earlier point in time, Paul had written to the Corinthian believers, saying, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And I suspect sometimes we can forget that in things like ministry or evangelism, it's often a good idea to work it's part of a team. You now, Paul rarely went, or didn't really go on his missionary journeys alone. He was usually traveling with men like Barnabas, Timothy, Luke, Titus, and others. Today, sometimes we've kind of lost that model a bit, you might say. We tend to send one missionary by himself to a certain location, we send one minister to a certain church. But there's still ways that we can kind of benefit from the reminder of the need to to work together. Reminded of the need for for elders and deacons to be there working with the minister. Not simply expecting, say, that Reverend Paul will be able to do all the teaching and instruction on his own. It's not healthy for for ministers to be isolated. It's not healthy for elders to be isolated or, or deacons either. Nor should we let individual members of the congregation have to to fight their spiritual battles alone. We're not called to to fight upon or to fight our spiritual battles afraid that others will condemn us if they should know the truth about what we deal with. We ought to remember that we are all in need of God's grace. None of us is worthy because of who we are to be part of God's elect. We are saved through grace, by faith, rather than by works. We are granted eternal life on the basis of what Christ has done, not on the basis of our own spiritual performance. Paul had been appointed to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Titus was a, a living example, you might say, of that ministry. Titus was, by all accounts, a Greek or sorry, that makes him a Gentile, someone who was uncircumcised, something which frequently offended the the believers with Jewish roots who struggled to accept that circumcision and obedience to the law was not essential for salvation. Titus, you might say, was a, a living example of God fulfilling a petition that King Solomon made in 1 Kings 8. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. And So Paul can greet Titus with the encouraging words, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're all to remember God's grace. Because it reminds us that our salvation comes because of God's mercy. We are to reflect upon the peace we have with God because it reminds us of Christ's work in our behalf and His care for us. At the same time, it is the only thing which can truly give us the motivation to be at peace with others. We can live at peace with others in the church despite the fact that we will sin against one another and there will be irritations and frictions within the body of Christ if we keep our focus on the grand work that Christ has done. We're not going to be perfect at living with one another or building one another up. Sometimes we'll even cause each other real pain. But we ought to be willing to work with one another and to forgive one another our shortcomings because God has shown such grace and mercy and peace towards us. As a congregation, we are addressed with similar words at the start of our worship services to remind us of such things. We are to be a spiritual family, a body in which we are striving to care for one another. Solomon prayed, let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. May, May he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. As believers, let us daily reflect upon all that we share in Jesus Christ. But then let us not simply keep our thoughts to ourselves. Let us speak openly and willingly with others around us. Let us strive to ensure that our faith is not kept to ourselves, but going out so that God might receive all the glory that he is due for all that he has done. That his elect people might be better instructed and prepared for service in both this life and the next. Amen.